0: Hey guys, it's Lori here, just letting you know that this episode is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Learn more at csbible.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 185. Which of the six types are you?
0: Yes, hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast where we talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day. I'm your host, Lori Krieg, and I have alongside me my favorite licensed therapist in Argyle aficionado, my husband, Matt Krieg.
1: Hello. We're
0: going to circle back to the Argyle thing again for like the 700th time, but it's very applicable today. Steve, we do have you with us, the ever faithful and most professional radio voice among us producer steve well
2: thank you hi guys
0: hey steve uh guys the reason i want to circle back to argyle is we have with us today dan allender and kathy Lorzell. and um dan schooled us in this argyle world back in the day right matt
1: mm-hmm. i'm still still reeling from, <laughs> from the uh correction that i got <laughs>
0: I had called him an Argyle expert and I was doing the intro with the guests on listening and the guest was uh, Dan Allender. And he was like, what does that mean? How much do you know about Argyle? You remember that, Steve? Oh, yeah. It, it, we were all like, I don't know. We don't really know anything, actually. I was actually.
1: bracing myself for the, you know, uh, professional voice challenge to come next. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: No, he was super. He was just invitationally. He was just asking the question. Matt's like, uh.
1: It's I just a- like to wear it. <laughs> It's sorry.
0: I'm actually not an expert. So now Matt's an Argyle aficionado. Thank you, Dan Allender for that correction. Uh, but we're going to talk with them today about their book redeeming heartache and Oh my goodness, the six types, just the ways that we respond to trauma and the redeeming ways that we can not just ignore belittle whatever trauma, but have the Holy spirit uh, transfigure it into something redemptive is just so helpful. Uh, So we're going to be diving into that today. But before we do, guys, I just want to remind you, we have a resource for those of you who are married or know married people. You know anybody married? Guys around this table? Mm.
1: Couple. Couple.
0: (laughs) One or two. Uh, Well, we have a $10 uh, devotional. It's 14 days to unstick your stuck marriage. If you read Impossible Marriage or if you know someone who's just feeling stuck, this isn't specific to mixed orientation marriages, it's to marriage. Uh, but we would love to get that into your hands. You can go to lauricrieg.com slash shop. Guys, I am so excited to welcome back to the show today, Dr. Dan Allender. And welcome to the show for the first time, Kathy Lorazel. Did I say it right, Kathy? Lorizel. Lorzel. It's okay. It's yeah. like, okay. <laughs> I it's extra- a tricky one. Yes. Those German names. Uh, okay, well, Krieg, we often get Craig or Keurig, which I'm like, yes, I will take all that Keurig money. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, well, let's introduce you both. Uh, Dan Allender, he's the best selling author of numerous books, including The Wounded Heart, which I love. We've talked about on here. Having spent 30 years pioneering a unique therapy centered around inner transformation, he's seen healing occur in countless individuals by connecting the story of the gospel to people's universal heart wounds. Pivotal, pivotal in my own journey. As a co-founder of both the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and the Allender Center, he is widely sought as a speaker on topics of trauma recovery, love, and forgiveness. But Matt, who is Kathy?
1: Yeah, Kathy Lorzell. Hey,
0: there it is. Is (laughs) co-founder
1: of the Allender Center, combining her background in organizational leadership and development with an MA in counseling psychology. She is a respected leader, instructor, and speaker And over the past decade, she has also helped to develop the groundbreaking trauma-informed narrative theory. She and her husband live in Seattle with their two children, two dogs, and a flock of chickens.
0: Oof. I would like to talk chickens, but we're going to talk trauma and heart care today. Uh, The two together are the author of the book that I'm holding up here. If you guys are not watching this video, you can watch it on YouTube. They're the authors of the new book, Redeeming Heartache, How Past Suffering Reveals Our True Calling, welcome friends thank you what a
2: delight thank you it's so lovely to be back with both of you
0: oh thank you Man, guys, I'm so excited to dive into the conversation around your book today and into, I'm sure, some of your stories. But Let's start with some of your specific gospel journey. Dan, you shared some of it with us the last time you're on. Uh, but for those who are maybe newer listeners, I would love for them to hear just a piece of both of... Technically, it's your testimony, but we don't like to phrase it that way. Uh, but the answer to the question we've asked every guest on here, which is this. If I am more loved than I imagine, and yet more sinful than I believe, how did you first get to know this gospel story as good news, and how has it been good news lately? Uh, Dan, we will start with you, and then Kathy, we'd love to to shift to you.
2: Well, I, my story begins uh, with my best friend, uh, Tremper Longman III, and he was the one who opened the door to the gospel by first telling me about the Bible, which I had never heard the word Bible before. And uh, when he began to describe that it was God's word, it was like, there's a God and and God spoke. What? <laughs> uh, and yeah, he said, you know, in, in the Old and New Testament, I'm like, what? I, I, total. Total complete confusion. And uh, when he eventually kind of went through the gospel, I honestly thought it was beyond ridiculous. Uh, I was really offended that something happened several millennia ago that had any relevance to my life and particularly that I was a sinner. Now that was something that didn't take a lot of data to help confirm. Uh, And I'll just say, as we get into the book, Uh, the reality of my family was fairly broken uh my mom was uh difficult uh technically called a borderline personality disorder and the way i handled uh, her desire to uh, essentially eat me was to create chaos uh Mm -hmm. to cause conflict uh so i had lots of run-ins with authorities power figures mother uh and so The idea that I could be difficult and that I did that which was not good was not. That was the part of the gospel that made total sense to me. But the portion that I needed a savior uh, and this savior existed 2000 some years before and that he died for me, all that was. I just thought was ridiculous, uh, and uh, as I shared with you on the last show, um, I, I was involved in what I, I euphemistically call uh, far, illicit pharmaceutical sales, uh, and uh, another way of putting that is drug dealing. And uh, a outfit called the Cleveland Mafia, uh, apparently, at least reputationally, had put out contracts against a number of like low level local drug dealers and i was one of those and that though the gospel was very clear to me uh and and ridiculous there was something about death that uh brought a certain focus to that whole category and that that's the context where i remember walking down a street just just literally going fine fine Uh, And in that, uh, I I do believe there was a beginning of transformation. And let's just say my Christian life has been messy. It was not an immediate radical change. In fact, I I don't know if there was any change at all other than a few externals. Uh, But there was a beginning, uh, something of the seed of the gospel. And I think that's pretty much been true for the last 40 years of, um, I believe, Uh, uh, help my unbelief. That's been uh, basically a core notion of I'm an unbeliever uh, or I wouldn't sin. Uh, And yet in the reality of facing my sin, there has been something of the glorious gratitude of what, what Jesus has done on my behalf.
0: Mm. Amen. Kathy, we would love to just pitch the same question to you to just hear how the gospel was first good news for you. And how has it been lately? Sure, <laughs> such an interesting question. Um,
3: I I've always had a hard time with kind of my quote unquote testimony because really. Um, I found um, I found Christianity and the Gospel because I was desperate for something to help me make sense of my world, mm-hmm. and something that I could cling to that would give me a rule book so I knew how to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's really how it started. I was so relieved that, from my little girl perspective, there w- there was a rule book. And I knew what to do, and I knew where I should be, what I should be doing on Sunday mornings, and, you know, and and that's really how my journey with God started, which I think is is sometimes a normal one for a lot of people who kind of grew up in the church, Um, and it was really relieving for a good portion of my life, but really what it moved me into was a very dogmatic faith where I was doing the right things, uh, reading the right scripture every day, doing my devotions. Like I was a good nineties youth group girl,
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) you know,
3: and there's nothing, I don't think that, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but it wasn't until I got into college and I was striving almost to the point of illness to be the person that I thought I was meant to be from God's perspective. And these two women, sat me down um, at a diner outside of Grove City, Pennsylvania, and they were the pastors of a church in the middle of a cornfield. And they, we, I had visited their church on a whim because we were late for the church that we were going to. And this church was starting right when we were passing it. And my friend and I were like, well, let's just go here because at least then we'll, we'll be going to church. And so we show up literally in the middle of cornfields in Pennsylvania. And there are these women and, and, and one of the woman's husband who is running this tiny little church in a grange. And they were fascinating to me because it was the first time I'd actually seen the wildness of the gospel and the wildness of God's love play out. Mm. And I was intrigued. And they sat me down at in this diner over like ice cream and and said, you know, Kathy, do you actually believe that if you stopped trying and doing everything that you're doing, that God still loves you? Mm. And it was a very simple question, but in that moment, I knew in my heart, I didn't actually believe that. Mm. Um, and, and it really moved me into a place where they were like, you don't really know God's love for you. It's so dependent on what you're able to do um, and you're able to do a lot, but what happens when you stop? Um, and, and it radically changed my life. And I would say that's the moment where the, where the truth of the gospel pierced my heart in a way that just um, moved me into a place where I was more honest about who I was on, on the underbelly of my perfectionism of my performing um, and really moved me in a trajectory where I was radically committed to um, helping others move from kind of this dogmatic faith to actually meet the real Jesus. Um, and and that's, I think that's, that's part of what's happening now as well for me, um, it just in, in deeper ways where I don't think my war with perfectionism or striving will ever really end. But at each juncture, God meets me in such radical ways to say, um, you know, you need to stop mm. um, and meet me again. Um, and so I, I think that that trajectory has, has continued to be very relevant in my current life.
0: Which, thank you for sharing that, and I, I love how you addressed that uh, in the book when you talk about kings and queens, which we're going to get to that in, in a bit here. Uh, uh, first, I want to, you know, just kind of reset, just talking about pain and trauma in the world in general right now. Uh, Dan, for you, um, I, I almost <laughs> very literally cannot talk to a close friend or someone I'm discipling walking alongside who is not going through very hard, if not extremely challenging life right now. Like at every every single person I talk to, I mean, including myself, there's some tough stuff. Dan, why do you think that is? What's going
2: on? Well, it's too easy to come back to COVID. Right. But I I do think uh, it is impossible to escape the reality that we're living in a freaking pandemic. And that has opened the door uh, because we say often, trauma doesn't just beget trauma. Trauma reveals trauma. And so there are so many unaddressed heartaches that we're putting the word trauma to uh, because uh, every trauma has a sense of threat to self, to body, to relationship, where we feel somewhat powerless. And in that interplay of threat and powerlessness, that's a very good description of where we are right now in the middle of the pandemic. But what is opening up is so much fear that has been unaddressed through much of our life. And what seems to happen with fear is that we need somebody to blame. Uh, And so we scapegoat and our rage, our anger, our disappointment uh, intensifies. But after a while, just being angry, doesn't seem to work so what you you, you see this sequence of of yep. fear to more rage to a kind of despair yep. uh a an internal external quitting falling away and i i'm I, I cannot say that i've ever seen in my christian life more of people i trust and love and care for who essentially are quitting Yep. Um, uh, turning away, falling away, uh, and even if it's not a kind of apostasy, it, it's a loss of joy, a loss of purpose, and a sense, uh, a loss of real trust. So a greater disillusionment. That's what I'm watching.
1: Oof. Yeah. Well, and I mean, as as you said, we are living in a freaking pandemic, and and. There is, for the last year plus, it's just been a lot of fear, a lot of pain, a lot of things that are out of our control. You know, and one of the things you write around about in your book um, is just to invite people deeper into their stories to, to really redeem the heartache that they feel. Um, and so coming out of this year and a half, like how, Kathy, how would you invite someone maybe to look into their stories at this point? And, and why is that important?
3: hmm I mean, the, the, the good and bad of, of living in the midst of the pandemic and living in the midst of such visible trauma is that it's actually bringing out um, our style of relating around heartache. So everything that we're playing out in our current lives is connected to how we were taught, how we reoriented our hearts when our, our peace, our, our trust was first shattered when we were young that's all playing out right now. So every, every way that you're handling your current trauma is not new, it's just exposed. And, and so I think the gift in all of this is that you do have active windows right now, active wounds, active terror, active fear that could, if you lean into it, give you an, op- an opportunity to go back and actually heal the original wounds um that created the situation you're in right now so you know for those of you who are are in the midst of the pandemic and you feel your anxiety rising you feel a sense of your your controlling more of your environment. Um, you are panicked at the idea of of doing things like, you know, going out for a day where you're not sure where you're gonna go. It's just an adventure, right? And that and you don't have any taste for that right now. Everything that you have that you do has to be pre-planned, right? You have a history with not believing that there are people around you that that you can trust. You have a history of your heart not being tended to in the way that it was meant to. Um, when you were young and the way you controlled that was through controlling your environment. So all of it can be indicators for you to go back. But again, the thing that Dan and I always talk about is that um, you can't do, you can't heal the present without going back to the past. And so we have a tremendous opportunity if if we have enough courage and capacity to move into it, to actually heal long-term wounds that are acting out right now, that are flaring up right now, but are not new to our hearts.
0: Uh, okay, listeners, do you hear the invitation? Do you hear the invitation? And before you turn this off, you're like, that sounds hard. But look, if you're if you, it seems like we maybe have to get good and tired of today to be willing to look at yesterday. So if you're feeling good and tired. Uh, just keep, keep listening. But Dan, before we dive into those six types, uh, those styles of, I don't even know how you guys actually define them exactly. What are the six types? So I'll, we'll, we'll defer to you, Kathy, in just a second. But before we do that, to the person who's listening, who is like, no, I was born when I was 21 and I don't have a childhood and I'm fine. I don't know. I'm just, this isn't dysfunction. Like what's, what do you say to people who are like, I don't actually have trauma. I was never sexually assaulted, blah, blah, blah. How, what's the, how do you invite them into this?
2: Well, let's just start with an obvious. You didn't get born in Eden. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reality that you lived with sinners, I don't care how good they were. They sinned against you. And the nature of sin, Jesus talks about, as lust and anger. Now, this may offend you, but I didn't come up with this. Jesus calls your mother an adulterer and a murderer. Uh, And if you say, no, she wasn't, well, then you're ultimately saying she didn't sin. So, uh, it's hard. Oh, I get it. Uh, Like, we're in the middle of a lot of travail. And then, as you put it so well, to open the door to these realities feels like it's too much. But if we can start with the assumption, hey, it's playing out right now it's in it's in your body so can we begin to tell the truth because the truth will set you free it may make you miserable at first but it, no matter what kind of good home you came from the reality is there was a lack of attunement meaning people didn't feel and see and engage you as you were meant they didn't hold your suffering uh, in the way that, indeed, you were meant to be held, and often they didn't repair the kind of breaches or ruptures that occurred. So, the reality is we all bear some of the effects of the fall. That's what we're calling trauma, mm-hmm. threat powerlessness, and in that sense of of what Kathy was putting words to, anyone who bears a sense of perfection um, has to have a sense of shame for not being able to reach what it is they have claimed they should be. Mm -hmm. So, those are the factors that we're saying, look, um, we know it's awful today, but you're bringing baggage, luggage that you shouldn't be carrying. Can we begin to unpack it? And in the unpacking, yes, there are hard truths uh, that we need to be able to not only name but, but grieve, uh, to own that there is real loss. Uh, but we're not just saying you're a victim. What we're also, as Kathy put it so well, we function in the world ultimately with a sense of we will be God. I will control my world. I will manage it. I will make it work. And it inevitably leads to incredible exhaustion and in many ways, disillusionment. And that's part of the task of honoring our past is to open up more clarity about how I'm, in some sense, trying to make my way in the present that actually isn't working. Mm.
0: Well, there's the invitation. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: Hey, Matt, have you noticed I've been using a different Bible lately?
2: I
1: have. Is it a CSB?
0: Yes, it's a Christian standard Bible. It's the She Reads Truth one.
1: Are you telling me that you don't just talk about the CSB on ads like this, but you actually read it?
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I do actually read it. I'm reading the She Reads Truth one every day now for a bunch of reasons. But the biggest one is I love the margins. I love writing the date and some prayers and real life stuff in it.
1: Do you write about me in there?
0: Um, yes.
1: Like, thank you Jesus for how awesome my husband is, dated
0: every day of my life? Um, no. (sighs) (laughs) Okay, seriously guys listening, I am loving not only the margins where I can write, Only gratitude to the Lord for my awesome husband, Matt. But I love that it was edited by women and the devotionals in it are actually uplifting and not fluffy or patronizing. And the timelines. Each book of the Bible has this timeline that helps me to understand what's happening in this book in relationship to the rest of the canon of the Bible.
1: Okay, fine. That's fine. (laughs) Even if you write real stuff about me in it.
0: Okay, well, you can get one, too, and write real-life prayers about me in it. You know your girl needs them.
1: Yeah, well, I need them, too. (laughs) So where can I get this Bible or another Bible like it?
0: Well, you can find the She Reads Truth Bible or any of the CSB versions by hitting up csbible.com.
1: We all have this wounding. We all have this past, this history. We were not born in Eden, so we we all have something. To to go back to 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 process with, I, I guess the truth about who God is, who we are in in Him, and you you say in your book, Redeeming Heartache, there are six types, um, you know of. Well, I'm just going to say leave it at that because I don't know how you define it either. As Laurie said, what what are the six types that that we can become, and and why does that matter, Kathy? I'd love to hear from you.
0: Sure
3: yeah so the the six types are really grouped three by three. Um, and and so as as Dan and I have have done this work and and this is all borrowing off of um, uh, the categories that Dan has brought in in lots of his books over time, um, but when we we talk about the concept of Shalom, right? So Shalom is the idea of Eden, the idea that we are meant for perfect connection with God, self others, and the earth. That's, that's what our bodies and our souls are designed for, right? But then we're in this world that's that's fallen. And, and we're, we spend a lot of our time trying to make up the difference and trying to explain internally, externally, and and deal with the fact that what we're meant for is not the world we're living in, right? And so then what do we do? What do we do with ourselves, right? And so, um, as, as you experienced a shattering, um, like Dan said, betrayal, powerlessness, shame, um, you know, we've, we've moved into places where we're now, um, trying to self-protect in order to reclaim something of the Eden quote unquote Eden that, that we're meant for. And so we start to create a false Eden. We protect ourselves. And, and so, um, Biblically, there are three categories that what that talk about what happens when our bodies and our souls are in trauma and those archetypes, those those people are the orphans, the strangers and the widows. And and so what we've done in the book and I think what's also helpful in the work that we do at the Allender Center and moving through people's stories is give people um archetypes or characters that they can start to understand their lives through. Oftentimes one of the most difficult things for people in trauma is to start to, to sort out what's actually happening to them. And so what these archetypes do is gives us categories that are fairly universal. like when we talk about an orphan, pretty quickly. We have images, we have stories, we have we have language that we can start to connect our stories to a more universal story and often that's very helpful because, you know, language is lost in the midst of trauma. Meaning is lost in the midst of trauma. And so the more we can give language and categories and structures to help you orient your story to other stories, the more you have kind of a leg up in your capacity to not have to start from ground zero. You can start from a lot of stories. And, and when we wrote the book, you know, we're not using big T trauma stories to talk about orphan, right? We're talking about some more universal stories um, uh, and, and subtle stories that happen that, that activate our orphan hearts. So the core of orphan is really the sense of, no one is coming. Mm-hmm. It's up to me to take care of me. Um, my deepest needs, some needs may be met. I'm, I may not be hungry, I may have clothes, but there are other needs that I have that I'm intuitively understanding in my own heart and um, and they're not they're not being met so then I have to make a decision. Do I either take care of myself or do I not need? Mm-hmm. right But somehow you're making a choice of how you're going to handle the fact that your needs are not being met. Um, the other thing that happens to us in the midst of trauma is is we become a stranger, and the stranger is a sense of of you're moving past, um, you're speaking the truth, you you're exposing things in the system, and it's not going well for you, so you get cast out. Um, and you, you feel too much. You think too much. You know, the, the stranger is the part of us that have been na- has been named drama queen or king. Um, you know, you're you're too much. You're causing too much trouble. So so we don't want you around anymore because you're not sticking with the status quo. And so you're really you're you're a cast out of the of the system, the society. And the third one is is the widow. The idea that um, you know, you've known something of love, you've risked, you've opened your heart, you've rested into the goodness of mutuality and vulnerability and love has been lost. And so now you're deciding am I going to love again? Am I going to keep opening my heart because now I know that it will that that it could be lost again. And so will I risk, right? Mm-hmm. And so the top the first 3 archetypes we talk about is really the result of trauma. What do we what happens in our own hearts when we experience trauma? And that's the orphan, widow and stranger. And then the second um, three sets is really what is what happens when those three parts of our hearts are able to receive healing and able to move into places of redemption. What can those become? Mm-hmm. And those are the categories of priest, prophet, and king and queen. And really, those are that's the essence of what Scripture tells us that um, that Jesus was the perfect combination of. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the perfect priest, the perfect. Um, prophet and the perfect king. And so, it's really talking about that redemptive arc, um, where as we move into our struggle, um, we can actually become more of who we're meant
2: to be. Mm. The the core to that is that that our trauma isn't just to be healed. It actually has the potential to, in some sense, move us to become more mature. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, we want healing, for those wounds, but we also want a sense those wounds can propel us into a a, a redemptive arc for ourselves, but in deep sense for others. And that we, we just keep coming back to, we wanna be like Jesus, who is the perfect priest yeah. and the perfect prophet and the perfect king and queen. And the priest is the one who remembers, who in some sense holds the stories that the orphan refuses to engage. And the prophet is the one who in some sense calls us not just to truth, but to imagine what was meant to be and will one day be. So, the prophet is the one who knows what it is to not be belonging, to to be strange, but also calls forth for the ultimate communion of what will one day be. And the widow uh, who knows there is death um uh, becomes the king or queen why because every leader knows that whatever they build whatever they do there will be death there will be a suffering and a death if you lead and the widow is the preparatory process to being able to keep engaged not to be disillusioned not to quit not to control but actually to serve. So we we want those six categories to be, in one sense, revelatory of trauma, but also deeply revealing as to who we are and who we're meant to become.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. So to restate, look, I'm talking to three therapists right now. I'm using restating. Okay, here I go, Lori. <laughs> so we all have... <laughs> trauma lowercase t trauma and when I was like reading this book I kept going to Matt so Matt is a therapist Kathy if you don't know so I was like Matt I love this book so much I said it to Steve when we got in I said because it talks about the lowercase t trauma and I feel like so much of my life is trying to convince people they've had trauma Uh, but it's hard when it comes from me who I've had some capital T trauma and so they're like whatever I don't have your life so I'm fine anyway so we've all had trauma we can look at these different ways, these archetypes of, of responding to trauma, which everyone has had because we haven't been, we weren't born in Eden. And so can you help us just slow it down for a hot second? I don't, I, maybe we'll go back to Kathy. For someone who's listening, who is an orphan, how would they know if they have that orphan heart right now? What would be some words maybe they're hearing in their own heart? And then the invitation to the priest.
3: Mm-hmm. I love the orphan. Um, I, I, so I got to write this part of the book, The Orphan and the Priest, and, um, you know, and, and it's been a gift to have to slow, like you said, look, to slow it down and, and to really have to, to articulate the heart and the fear of the orphan, right? The struggle, the war. Um, and, and, I, and, again, I think oftentimes, um, you know, the literal aspect of orphan is that you've lost your caregivers, the people who are meant to take care of you, and so so what happens when when care is lost? And again, there can be extreme neglect, but for many of us, there are small moments throughout our life that have told us how we need to be in order to be acceptable to the system that we're born into. Mm-hmm. And so often, an orphan's heart has known something of um, of betrayal. You needed you were open to it and then you found out um, either subtly or, or in an extreme way um, that's that, that what you need is not available to you. Mm -hmm. And so um, so oftentimes an orphan will be very self-sufficient. I, I will only need what I can give myself. Right. And so um, but what happens in that, in that mindset is that you're not actually open to other people's care because it feels dangerous. It feels like you can't trust it. And it also feels like um, if I do trust it, if I do receive, what is that going to require of me? And so, you know, the idea of an, of an orphan, like, let's take it in its literal terms where an orphan's desperate and needs something. And then someone comes alongside and says, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll, I'll help you, um, you know, and immediately an orphan is going, okay, this is going to make me um, vulnerable to exploitation Mm. because as soon as I need, I'm now vulnerable because now I'm needing something. I'm receiving something that I can't give myself. Mm. So there's a degree of hypervigilance, right? You're watching around every corner. What is this going to cost me? If I rest, how am I going to be harmed? How am I going to be humiliated? What's going to come around the other corner? And so even in the midst of rest, you're not actually resting, you're you're resting with one eye open, waiting for, for what the care is going to cost you. And can you imagine what that means over a lifetime, both in your own exhaustion, like that takes a lot of energy to keep that going. And to be able to rest and receive delight and have gratitude, you need to be able to be open to what other people can offer you. And so you're really closed off and you're tight in your control and in, um, uh, in, in controlling the environment that's around you to make sure that you're never caught off guard, right? Mm. You're exhausted. Um, but you're also not actually receiving the care, and you can't ex- experience true gratitude because the def- definition of gratitude is is receiving something that you cannot give yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, if you're never in that place of being able to receive that with an open, trusting heart, um, you know, then you're always um, like kind of coiled up and ready for for the the place that you're going to be harmed next. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it you know it keeps you from being able to receive. Surprise and delight and um, and play because you're always 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 looking around the corner.
0: Yeah. I'm uh, actively not looking at Matt right now because I know he's like. So Lori, you listening? You listening to her? <laughs> Can you get to your next level of healing, please? <laughs>
1: uh, actually, I'm zero percent thinking <laughs> really? that because I am thinking, holy crap, this is me. Oh. Um. Uh, a couple. I'm gonna open up a little bit. A couple years ago, we were in. A, a kind of a marriage counseling mentorship situation and we were kind of praying for each other and there's a song by Ryan Stevenson called The Gospel and one of the lines in there that says to the captive it looks like freedom to the orphan it feels like home and for some reason that line to the orphan it feels like home just like completely wrecked me and i was like okay. i i had such a good upbringing i had both both parents that cared for me and all of this stuff and and so they were good and and I knew I was loved but but there was this like realization that even though that was happening there wasn't always this attunement and and so just emotionally I felt like an orphan and that as you called it self-sufficiency self-reliance is something that I'm super good at and it feels like well it plays right into our cultures like value set. Like we love self sufficient people, self reliant people. And it's so hard for me. Like anytime someone asks me an emotional question, my initial like knee-jerk reaction is like, wait, why are you asking me this? What do you really want? And and so like this this is me. And so thank you guys for, (laughs) for this I guess language. Um so here I am, I I guess opening up to to that and yet the opposite, the the alternate, the the growth I guess, trajectory for the orphan is the priest. Mm-hmm. And, and so what is, I, I guess, what is the calling that, that the priest, that I, I guess maybe I could be, um, instead of clinging to this orphan identity to become that priest, what, what's, what's my trajectory, guys?
2: Well, first uh, I'll say, notice where you go uh, to, to truth uh, and to story. And so, as a good therapist, you you know you're brilliant at hearing story and engaging it and reading it and telling it. And that's in so many ways. The priest is the one who can hold and teach or talk or invite us to engage our story, not just theoretically or thematically, but actually in the particularity where um, you know, our body is, in, it, it, in some sense, inhabited by unaddressed particularity. The things that occurred to us uh, happened in seconds, minutes, and those highly traumatic moments, even with small-t moments, we carry with us and uh, stories release When we begin to tell and own our story, and that's what the priest does—a holds story, invites it, and gives, in some sense, rituals for living out story, and creates icons for that story to be memorialized. That's the gifting that um, the the orphan, in some sense, as they begin that healing process, invites not only him or herself but others into that kind of story life
0: oh matt that's what you're doing that's what you're doing that's really sweet with your job yeah dan i know you wrote this section on the stranger the same question as i asked kathy just like what if someone's listening and they're saying to themselves like they they resonated when you first introduced the stranger kathy but what would be the sentences in their heart to kind of recognize the stranger heart within them
2: Well, it begins with the fact we all want to belong, uh, to, to actually have that sense that we are included, and not just included, but invited and wanted and enjoyed. And the stranger always feels like their accent isn't correct, that their dress doesn't quite work, that they feel a little bit out of sync. And then way more than a little bit. Like (laughs) I know I'll never be in the so-called in crowd. Uh, And so that sense of uh, like pressure to fit, but also a a kind of resentment of that group that you're trying to fit in. Like, I don't really want to be in that. Uh, I do. I don't. Uh, And so uh, often profits Uh, And that's the the movement. Often the prophet is the one who does not fit the realm of the priest or the realm of the king or the queen, Um, the one who lives in the wilderness. So, in that sense, the stranger feels like they live in a wilderness. Um, They just don't seem to quite have the step to be able to be in the group that they wish, which creates such resentment, anger you know when you find yourself just disappointed and cynical um where you write people off you write groups off and you just uh, just plain simple feel irritated uh, uh, th- uh that's probably where the stranger is showing him or herself
3: yeah you know and i think i think the stranger then um the The heart of the stranger is that they're heartbroken by the state of the world. Mm. Um, that they feel deeply what the world is meant to be or what the world could be, and they've re- they've been rendered powerless to do anything about it. They've tried to change systems. They've tried to speak into their family. You know, in the beginning, they trusted and thought maybe their voice was welcome, and then they they tried and they got they got kicked out. Um, they they were made the fool. Um, they were put outside the city gates. And so I think, you know, the heart of the stranger th- that I would want to invite them back into is that you're, you're not actually cynical, you're heartbroken.
2: <laughs> mm. But cynicism is the way to escape Being feeling that kind of heartbroken. So right. as the orphan is hypervigilant, um, the stranger uh, turns to just saying, "I don't care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I don't need to be part of that world." Yet I couldn't agree more with what Kathy's saying. Underneath mm-hmm. it is incredible disappointment and heartbreak.
1: Yeah, yeah. It it seems like this stranger prophet. Um. It could be a really good advocate. And and really has the heart of advocacy, but but in that stranger, it maybe is driven by anger. Whereas maybe what what would I, I guess what would the prophet? How would it contrast? Um, I mean, maybe less with this um, heartbreak that's being covered by cynicism. But you know, how would a prophet engage,
2: whereas a stranger would would maybe not? Well, we go back to the notion of they see the future, not not predicting it but far more see what Eden was meant to become. And so in that sense, as Kathy put it so well, we we have an idea of how relationship, how systems, how the world is meant to be. And in some sense, we pray that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. And that desire for justice, righteousness, goodness, beauty, that's why often it's the therapist, the poet, the songwriter, the artist, who actually is revealing um, something of the desire, but also the truth telling of what is. So, in that, they live in the tension of naming what is broken, but also believing and calling forth what is beautiful. And so, uh, there's a lot of angst, a a lot of suffering that often comes in that prophetic presence. And yet, that's why it's so important that we not separate these two severely because we're all meant to be orphans who become priests because in that sense, there's a presence of tenderness. When you have advocacy without tenderness, generally, you have people um, who might be telling the truth, but in a way in which the truth becomes obnoxious rather than invitational?
0: Mm. I know we're nearing the end of our time here, uh, so I want to be respectful of you guys. But just briefly, Kathy, can you? I know you explored the kings and queens slash widow. I, I couldn't relate quite to the widow until you got to the kings and queens part. Can you just explain again what might be the heart of a of a widow listening, and uh, just that invite to the kings and queens? Yeah, um, interestingly
3: enough, widow. Whenever I you know we've taught this material for a decade, um, I, widow has always been really difficult for me to explain. When because <laughs> I'm a queen, and <laughs> and interestingly enough, this past you know a couple of years I've gotten the widow a lot more. Mm. Um, because of the just loss. But I think, I think the reason the widow is so difficult for us to step into is because she knows death.
2: Mm.
3: She knows death, and she knows what it's meant to love, to risk, and then realize that, that in some ways, death is unavoidable. Um, everything that we love in the current moment, every structure that we've given our lives over to, every ministry that we've created will will experience death and decay and heartbreak and we and in our idealism we do not want to know that we don't want to know that the ministry that we're creating right now or the the husband that we're co- committed to ultimately will have some sort of death embedded in the relationship, whether that's an actual death or a death of moments, death of relationship, death of stability, betrayal that's embedded in it. Like the widow knows that and you can read it on her face. We do not want to engage those parts of our heart. We don't want to know that mm-hmm. because because it keeps us from having to really understand what we're risking when we create, what we're risking when we give ourselves over to mutuality and, and goodness. And so the, the, if the widow knows death, right? The, the, um, the movement of redemption is then to love again, to, to do it again. But in this way, you're doing it again, knowing that death is inevitable. And so you're holding it in a different way and, and I think the risk is if the widow does not grieve, if she doesn't understand what she's suffered, what's at risk, what's at stake, then she will create on the other side um, it, in, in a way that holds on with a concretization um, because she's desperate to make sure death does not happen again. But if the widow can actually be engaged and she's able to grieve and understand that it's inevitable, like it will come, but it will not kill her, it's going, it's not going to be okay, but she's, but, but it's, it's, um, but there can be goodness still, then she can create with arms open and actually serve and serve the communities that she's meant to serve the communities that he's meant to and really set the table for the prophet and the priest to do their work on behalf of the community. That's the role of the queen is to hold um, the structures and create the space where flourishing can actually happen for the whole of the kingdom. There's a weight to it, but the weight will turn into tyranny if she doesn't understand that death is is there and 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 learns how to grieve it and hold it in her heart and still extend her heart in mutuality and vulnerability. Mm-hmm.
0: Good grief, you guys did such a good job explaining these. So like, I'm like, wow, this has been really uh, beneficial for me. We do have one. Um, I honestly would love to talk for like several more hours, but we do have one last question for you guys uh, that, we, that we're just asking people, our guests this season, Uh, Just again, just with an awareness that there's lots of giving up happening right now that you alluded to, Dan. Uh, So with what you've talked about, these six mindsets in mind, our reactions to trauma, and then the invitation to our redemptive roles in mind, why is Jesus worth following still? With this kind of framework in our mind, why still Jesus in 2021? We'll go to Dan and then we'll go to Kathy.
2: Oh, I uh, my heart always goes back to Peter's statement, and that is to whom else? Right. Meaning, right. Uh, I've looked. <laughs> I've, I've, you know, I've, I've got a few alternatives out there, uh, <laughs> but to whom else shall we go? Because only you have the words of life, and I want life. I. I I want more life. And uh, no one holds, no one creates, no one redeems, no one brings life like Jesus. So, in that sense, uh, I, I may not want him. And there are many moments where that's the case. But the reality is, it, he is the only one who has touched the very core of who I know I am and who I want to become.
0: Mm so good how about you kathy
3: um you know scripture and like i um as i've done my progression through through christianity there are moments where i've stepped back from scripture you know like needed some space and as i've stepped back into it there is nothing more real to me than the trajectory of life death and resurrection there is nothing that I know of that is more true to the human experience than, than those categories. And, and I think, you know, if we take Jesus out of it and there's just life and death and no possibility of resurrection, then I don't want to live that life. Right. Because I know death. I, I know that I, I know the experience of loss and suffering and the confusion and, but then the that fact that we have a God that is so kind and loves us and, and isn't surprised by our sin and our failure and that the price is already paid. Mm. Um, I don't know of anything that's more hopeful than that. And when you do know suffering, the idea that there is a kind God where the price has already been paid And yet there's still work to be done in in living out the gospel daily. It's not just a passive sense of receiving something. You're still activated towards it, but you get to join in something that makes sense. And and no one who's really leaned into life, like no one can deny that death isn't around every corner, Mm -hmm. especially in this season. I think that's Mm -hmm. why we're all freaking out because (laughs) death is here. Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, like we're in an existential crisis and God, but God's already written the book on it <laughs> and, yeah. and we get to join and participate. Yeah.
1: Oh, so good. Well, guys, thank you. Thank you for this conversation and thank you for your book, Redeeming Heartache. Uh, we would love for you um, to, to tell the listeners, hey, how can they find out more about this work and, and then more about any of the other books that you guys have written, any of the work that you're doing?
3: Yeah, so you can go to theallendercenter.org um, and find, you know, all of our offerings at the Honor Center, workshops, um, online courses, certificates, trainings, um, and then all the books that Dan and Becky Yonder have written, and now Redeeming Heartache. Um, and then you can follow us on Instagram, I'm at kathy.lorzell, and um, we're doing new content all the time and explaining this, and so that's a, a great way for you to, to learn more about this content as well.
2: And I, I can't remember my handle on Instagram.
3: Dan Allender. I think you might have a B.
0: Dan B. Oh yeah, Dan B. Allender. I just started following you today, so there we are. That's it. Man, guys, thank you so much. I'm I'm not just blowing smoke. You guys just did a really great job helping us uh, understand these different ways that we respond to trauma, and then the redemptive call uh, to really not just live differently, but transform that pain with Jesus. So thank you so much.
2: Oh, thank, thank you. you, and again, such an honor to be with you both.
0: Thank indeed. you indeed.
2: Thank you both.
0: Thank you, guys. Seriously, guys, go check out "Redeeming Heartache." Uh, also, side note for those of you who like the Enneagram—if you think it's evil, ignore this—but. <laughs> At the end, uh, they do like correlate how these six types uh, in an appendix relate to the Enneagram. It's very interesting. But if you're not into that, just ignore that. But please do follow Dan and Kathy and the Allender Center everywhere. Their podcast is really great. I love what they've been doing uh, in so many different fields. Mostly with this lens in our mind, but just go live and spread the good news of the gospel in a world that's so stinking desperate and hungry for it. Thank you again to Dan and Kathy and for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast. We'll see you next week.